This is your host, Dr. Gordon Harris, and this is a place for learners. Today I have uh, Dr. Albert Chang. And uh, Albert, if you would be so kind, please say hello and then tell us. Well, actually, I wanted to start off with um, what you told me. So why don't you say hello? Okay. <laughs> and then what, what was it that you said to me that started this whole conversation that I had to then record? Yeah. Um, so I hope I'm thinking about the same thing. So, hey, hey, everybody, it's it's great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation, Jordan, to, to be here. Um, yeah. So so we were talking uh, and uh, we just got talking about schooling and um, why it's it was hard to, to improve education. Um, and then we made a connection between my work and your work, actually. Right. So <laughs> I made this claim um, that. Uh, teacher uh, qualification, so so credentialing, um, according to the research, makes very little difference in terms of teacher quality. And then I guess your light bulb kind of went off and said, wait, that's the same thing in counseling, um, that credentialing is not very predictive of effective counseling. And so, um, yeah, I think that that's what started all. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm as curious to hear more about counseling now, because I, I think I definitely see a lot of parallels. And and actually, even in our conversation, we, we started seeing a lot of similarities between our, our fields. Yeah, I've I mean, I've always told you that I think counseling is about 20 years behind education, like all mm -hmm. the same problems. But uh, you guys are 20, 20 years ahead of us. But to frame this conversation. Who like what do you do? Right. Because for yeah. what most people know. Right. You could be anybody off the street, but you're I mean, you're actively working on this problem, doing research. So, like, what do you do? Where do you work? Just so people sort of have a sense of like just the credibility that you're bringing to this. <clears throat> yeah. Yes. So I'm a professor at the University of Arkansas. I'm in the Department of Education Reform. And so we're a small department here on campus and uh, we do education policy. So we study uh, programs, educational interventions and programs that, that get implemented. We study uh, policies as they get implemented. Um, so, you know, going for just to give you an example. Um, so here in Arkansas, uh, we have a new, uh, new major education uh, reform law that's just been passed, the LEARNS Act. And in it, there are um, certain policy changes with respect to teachers. So for instance, uh, there is a merit pay um, program. So, you know, to pay teachers differently. Um, and so, you know, we'll study uh, policies and programs that do that and try to use data um, to speak to its effectiveness. And so that's basically what I do. Um, and uh, so anyway, I'm looking forward to, to talking more about that and see to um, discuss how that really bears on our conversation. Yeah, I mean, and I think you're really bringing in a lot of things that are really near and dear to my heart, right? You're a quantitative researcher and you're also a teacher, right? I mean, part of why mm -hmm. we, and I don't, I don't say this is like a slam, but we kind of had trouble scheduling our, 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 our call because <laughs> you're, you're also teaching. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you're actually practicing what you're preaching. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, just for you personally, like why is education important? Why is education reform important? Yeah. So you know, um, so for me, um, and I take a very broad view of education, and, and really at the end of the day, it's it's all about formation. Um, you know, we're forming 
uh, kids' hearts and souls. Um, and not just kids, right? I mean, I, I teach at a university. So, you know, these, these are our young adults. And, um, and so, uh, you know, on, on one, on the one hand, it is about equipping, uh, the, the coming generation with technical skills, uh, right. We want them to be employable and contribute to, to all facets of, of society that way. But, um, it's not just about work skills. It's about forming people who can discern truth from error, who can discern um, moral good from from moral evil. Right? We want to to form people so that their hearts and souls are are in the right place. Um, and so I, you know, I, I'd go as far to say education is about. Uh, I mean, it is preparing the next generation to to continue and improve upon. Um, you know our, our social order and civilization and 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 the good of our of our communities i think that that is so true and that's one of the things that bothers me honestly about some of how i've seen education done is like we're not really building anymore in some mm, ways mm, yeah right yeah. and you're talking about building the next generation building what the previous generation has learned i yeah. i just have to ask though you know is there a personal element to this for you you're highly educated obviously you're very bright. Like, so you value education as well. Like, is there a personal element to this for you? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's funny. So I, I teach a, uh, one, one of the courses I teach at the university is, is education, educational philosophy. And so this is a question, this is a class where the students, um, you know, who are uh, former teachers or folks pursuing education policy, they want to get into uh, maybe working for, uh, local school districts or state government, uh, maybe advocacy groups, or just just doing research, you know, in the, at the academy. Um, and this is the course where they get to wrestle with uh, what's the purpose of education? Right? Why do we even care about this? What's the whole goal? What do we really want to see um, uh, in terms of outcomes for students that go through this this institution? Um, and and, you know, you, I mean, you're asking about how is this personal? You know, I, I bring this up because every time I teach that class, you know, we're wrestling with these enduring human questions about what's the purpose of all this? Mm -hmm. um, what does a good student look like? What's a flourishing life look like? Um, how do we live a life well lived? Right? What's what's happiness? And these are ultimate questions. You know, every time we have these discussions in that class about it, um, I find myself asking that question for myself and and reflecting upon my own life and whether um you know i ought to be making any changes to myself um uh so it's a lot of personal reflection about you know because i too am on this journey with, with my students about asking hey am i living a life that's that's well lived you know when, on the day i die um am i gonna say yeah this you know it was worth it i lived a good life I, you know and so I think these are important questions that we all have to wrestle with. I mean, it's it's part of being human, I think. You know, I am, um, for about the past 10 years, I've been really wrestling with this question of education for personal reasons. I mean, I basically got out of my grad program and I felt mm -hmm. woefully equipped to do my job, which also meant that I felt woefully equipped to provide. And for me, education, if I'm being honest, is what... When I finally got really well educated, it's what made me feel the most like a man. Mm -hmm. Like now mm -hmm. I can provide for my family. Now I can mm -hmm. go out into the world and make something happen. And having kids now, 
I think about this question of education a lot. And so, and I'm always wondering about how do I teach my kids the skills they need so that when I'm no longer here, they'll be okay. That's like, yeah. that's like the burning question in the back of my yeah, mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear you. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm beginning <laughs> to wrestle with that. I mean, you know, I have a, a one-year-old. We have kids around the same so, age, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, no, my wife and I, we, yeah, this is, this is a, we wrestle with this. Um, uh, yeah. You know, when we're gone, I mean, is, is he going to be all right? Um, you know, when he turns 18 or 21 or what, you know, name whatever age, what's he going to be like? Um you know, he's going to be a person of, of, of good character. Um, yeah, these, these are, these are deep. I mean, probably the, the deepest questions you can ask, I think, um, any human can ask. Yeah. 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 So let's cut to the chase. What does it mean when you say that teacher certification, teacher qualification does not impact outcome, does not impact student, uh, score like does that mean yes. like yeah. like their scores and standardized tests does that mean their ability mm -hmm. to go to college does that mean like like what does that even mean yeah 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 so there's there's now been a pretty long established body of, of research um on uh teacher prep um and, and we've basically identified a lot of uh variables that don't really seem to uh have any association with student learning as measured on test scores. So uh, for instance, um, uh, if you look at, uh, so, you know, one of the big ones is you would think teachers with a master's degree, right? A graduate degree would be more effective, um, you know, better instructors than teachers without a master's degree. And it turns out that if you compare um, teachers' contribution to, to student learning, at least as measured on, on standardized tests, that teachers with and without a master's degree look pretty much the same. Um, you know, another uh, related uh, facet of this is, uh, you know, we have our uh, schools of education um, that do the bulk of training teachers. So, you know, if you want to be a, a, a public school teacher, um, typically you, you major in education, you do your four years of coursework, um, and maybe there's a, a fifth year where you, you do some additional field work or whatnot. Um, right. That's what we call traditional certification. And then there are these other programs uh, called alternative certification, where you're not really majoring in education. So this is actually what I did. Um, I was a math major in the in undergrad. And I and I didn't want, you know, I didn't land on wanting to be a teacher until pretty late. So I missed the boat to start my undergrad with a with an education major. And so what I did was I finished my math major. And I did this one year um, program uh, at another local college, and that's how I got my certification. So that's what we call um, alternative certification. There's actually a lot of different other forms of alternative certification. It turns out that um, tradi traditional versus alternative certification, again, there's very little difference in, in terms of teacher quality um, as, as if we measure it based on student learning, uh, based on test scores. So um, you can say the same thing about uh, experience. So you would think that teachers that have a lot more years of teaching under their belt would be more effective than teachers who aren't. And there's a little bit of truth to this. So it turns out that in, in the, you know, First three to five years of teaching, you know, teachers are kind of 
they're learning the ropes of a new job and you see uh, some noticeable improvement over that time period. But once you get from five to six to 10 to 15 to 20, 30, there's very little change um, in terms of, uh, or, or impact, I should say, in, in student learning um, at those throughout those latter years. So, um, you know, what I mean by all this is that all these characteristics that we can observe of teachers, years of experience, what kind of credential they have, whether they have a graduate degree or not. Um, it turns out that they're not very predictive of student performance on, on standardized tests. And so you then begin to wonder, well, how do I actually identify good teachers? Um, uh, if, if the things that we can readily observe among teachers aren't really differentiating quality, um, how are we supposed to make sure we have a great teaching teacher force at, at, at you know throughout the state and in our schools? And so this is really the puzzle. Um, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll caveat all this by I'll just mentioning that th there are some things that that do predict um, teacher quality. So. Uh, when it comes to subject area knowledge, uh, particularly like in science and math, um, there's some evidence that suggests that, that teachers that have more content area expertise in, in these subjects um, tend to be a little bit more effective. Um, but, you know, those, those kinds of identifiers are um, more the exception than the rule. I mean, what you're talking about is like, it, it maps basically one-to-one -one with counseling, right? Like mm, if you mm. were to take a wide swath of counselors yeah, and you were to segment them versus uh, lay counselors versus mm. uh, counselors with a master's degree versus counselors with, with a, a doctorate, there's no difference in outcomes, mm, mm, you mm. know? Um, yeah. which, which is really like, for most counselors when they hear that, it's sort of disheartening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it yeah. is, right? And I mean, same thing with teachers, you know, um, especially if you want to improve things. It's like, well, how do we do that? If, if all the ways we can easily identify quality are not predictive, what do we do? <laughs> right? Um, that's, I mean, that's the puzzle yeah. we've been wrestling with for decades now. I was I was literally so, uh, you know, this podcast and other stuff that I do is a part of the part of my business where we coach therapists to launch their mm. own practice. And we got into a conversation yesterday, my coaching call yesterday about this very question, like, well, what do I do? Right. Mm. Because the same thing happens also in therapy where years of experience does not qualify, does not map into level of outcomes with clients. It doesn't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it's like, I mean, I literally told someone like the problem is the people who you would think to go ask yeah. how to get better. They also don't know. <laughs> like, yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, like, exactly. I mean, this is fascinating. Your professors, your your coaches at uh at your uh, trainers, like they, if you were to look at their outcomes versus your outcomes, in general, they're the same. Like there's there's not mm -hmm. a huge differentiation. And so we have a huge problem. Um so what do you think? So in counseling, we're finally starting to find ways to actually improve outcomes. Hmm. Um, but in your side of the field, right? Like, what do they do? How, how do they try to fix this problem? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, well, so, be well, well yeah. let me ask you a, a better question. Okay, sure. So what we know is that 
level of education and time in the field does not correlate with better outcomes yeah. at all. Yeah. But what we also know is that some counselors are better than other counselors. And yeah. some counselors are worse than other counselors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. In some ways, yeah. it's like it's like easy to like target the like low-hanging counselors. Yeah, 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 better. yeah. Yep. Right. Yep. And you can raise yep. everyone up but more. Yep. Um, but like in your field, like yep. is that also true? Like certain teachers are just standout teachers and other teachers are not, and then there's people in the middle. Like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's definitely a, a distribution, a spread uh, of teacher quality. Um, and so uh, there's been several policy proposals that have been um, laid out on the table and debated for the past almost 20 years now. Um, and we actually see some school districts um, and states even adopt this on a large scale. So so I'll tell you what um, the, the ideas are, right? So if we can't identify great teachers um, at the beginning of the pipeline, so to speak, right? At the, when, when, they're pre, when they're getting their training, pre-service candidates, if we can't separate out quality at that point, well, then the alternative is to separate out quality after they start teaching. And so there's really two general approaches to this. And it sounds like, you know, what you said in counseling, it sounds like this, I, I can see the analog. So the two approaches are one, um, well, let's just, open wide the gates, we'll let everybody in, um, uh, you know, if they kind of meet this minimum threshold. And then what we can do is um, once we identify the teachers that aren't doing very well, uh, let's give them, let's target them for professional development. Okay. Um, The other more stringent thing is then to actually make the hard decisions of counseling teachers out of uh, their jobs. Yeah, that's or, the thing I did want to say. firing, right? yeah. Like either, um, yeah, it's <laughs> a hard you get thing. better or we cut you because like, yeah, you're, yeah. you're at the bottom, so, you're not doing good. Right, and so, um, so, uh, so th- this has been tried actually in, in several districts and um, the evidence isn't bad on this. So um, in, in, in DC, Washington, DC, okay? I mean, this was a, a school district um, you know, again, 15, 20 years ago, I mean, they were they were doing very poorly. They're spending, I don't know, if upwards of, of 20,000 per pupil and not really, you know, there's nothing to show for, for all that investment. And, uh, you know, this is when Michelle Rhee um, comes in. Uh, so Adrian Fenty is the mayor at the time. And that's at a time where, where DC has mayoral control of their schools. And, and uh, Fenty um, appoints this, this woman named Michelle Rhee as uh, basically they call it the chancellor. Um, you know, so she gets a lot of authority to make changes. And one of the changes she makes is establish this uh, teacher evaluation and merit pay program um, called DC Impact. And it's actually still running today. And so in this program, um, uh, teachers are evaluated, and it's it's based off uh, an, an index of different measures. So one of them is value added, and so these are uh, statistical models that you can run um, for each teacher to essentially isolate um, their contribution to student learning. And so, and actually, I mean, I don't want to get way in the weeds of the statistics no, here, do. but please do. <laughs> you know, but essentially, what you can do with these models is you can identify teachers who um, basically uh, perform, a, given the kinds of students that they get, 
right? Whether, you know, depending on the gender, race, poverty background, uh, prior year, prior history of achievement, right? You can identify the teachers that for some reason, uh, if the same two, two students, uh, you know, if one of them were to go to this teacher and one of them were to go to a different teacher, this one teacher, for some reason, always does above average um, than, than would be expected with, with her students or his students, right? You can actually identify those teachers. And so these teachers are basically performing above expectation. Okay. And so we can use value-added modeling to identify these teachers that are just kind of knocking out of the park, really, um, or just doing above average in terms of improving student learning on, on standardized test scores. So you have value-added, okay? And then I think what they also have is um, a classroom observation protocol. And so they formalize the system where principals and maybe other master teachers come in and observe teachers um, several times a year and they have coaching sessions and they um, have, have follow-up discussions with teachers and they work with these teachers to, to identify, like flag, hey, what, what are you doing well and what are you not doing well? Um, and essentially, you know, you, you get metrics based off of that. And I think there's other components to this, but essentially what you can do is you can take observation protocols, uh, the scores on those protocols and value added scores, you know, mush them together and, and find, you know, basically get some metric of teacher quality and so what they did in DC was based on your, what they call impact score, um, you got labeled, you're categorized as either minimally effective, effective, or highly effective. And depending on what you and were- done well. This can't have gone yeah, well. <laughs> well so, so you can imagine the, the politics, right? Lost that, their minds. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. You can imagine that the politics that, that I mean, and this is, we can come back to this. I'll kind of sidebar this, right? This is why education reform is so hard because it's so political, right? There's there's competing interests no matter what you do, right? There's teachers, there's students, there's parents, there's leadership, yeah. there's the broader public, right? And there's competing interests. And so it's, it always makes any change, like any change is tough because you've got to navigate the competing interests, right? Yeah. Now, it turns out, I'll tell you the end of the story of, of DC. It turns out, so if, if you were rated highly effective um, for multiple years in a row, you qualified for merit bonuses of up to tens of thousands of dollars. Wow. Um, so so talk about paying teachers better. Um, you know, here in Arkansas, we, we raised the minimum teacher salary to 50,000 with, with the LEARNS Act. In DC, you know, they've been doing this for years that Teachers, um, and it wasn't just a broad increase. I, it was teachers that demonstrated their ability to improve student learning for multiple years. Their base salaries got raised and, and they've got merit bonuses that, that let them earn tens of thousands more dollars. And, you know, some teachers love that, right? The teachers that were doing their, their job well, I mean, you know, they, they love that reward. Um, on the flip side, let's talk about the minimally effective because this is where it gets dicey, right? Like, um, uh, what do you do with those teachers? Well, so DC, it wasn't uh, like this completely punitive thing was like, hey, if you're minimally effective, you know, you're cut from the team, right? Like what, what DC did was for teachers that were, were rated that way, minimally effective, they had a whole year of PD. Um, they targeted so, professional so learning professional for these teachers. Development, which in our yeah. field we call 
continuing ed, just okay, so people yeah. know the terms, but yeah. Okay, great, great. So it's like continuing ed, right, for teachers. And um, uh, so one of the key findings there is that- I already know teaching... what you're gonna say. I already know what you're gonna say. <laughs> oh, I don't know, okay. If it's, so, like, with, if it's like with like therapists, it's, you know, I already Oh, know. okay. Uh, so here's the story. Um, <laughs> minimally effective teachers, uh, they basically voluntarily left the field at, at a higher rate. So they kind of, I guess, came to like the realization that, hey, maybe maybe this isn't for me, right? That um, now I, I forget exactly the, because the, I think, you know, don't quote me on this. We'll have to look up the study. I also think that the minimally effective teachers, that the ones that stayed, um, that there was a little bit of improvement as well. Um, so, so you know, you, had, you saw two things. You saw some improvement, and that, that's the part I'm not sure of. What I'm more certain of in the in the research is that um, minimally effective teachers voluntarily left, right? And so this kind of, uh, right, if, if the alternative were, oh boy, I don't want to have that conversation with that teacher and fire this teacher, you know, maybe th this is a softer blow and, and you can kind of, over time, because of voluntary exits of, of really low quality teachers, you can improve the the, the teaching force so over time. Does that mean that they went through a year of continuing ed and then they left, or did they just get their scores back and go, actually, I'm just gonna be out? Yeah, I, I think it's a combination of both. Um, I, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what happened on the ground, but what we can observe right, is, is at the next year, at they some point by the end of the there. next year, some a lot of them were gone, right? So, you know, who knows how long they, they stayed that year. Um, but yeah, and that's, that's really the story. The like, big question then is how much for the ones, like if they stayed throughout the year, how much did the PD actually improve their outcomes? Yeah, outcomes? yeah. So so it's, it's tough based on the, the study um, of this program to, to figure that piece out, yeah. like that really specific piece. What I can say um, is so that, first of all, the, liter the broader literature on teacher professional development isn't that promising. So I don't know if this is the case in, in so for continuing again in counselor at, uh, counsel for counseling, um, that a lot of times PD, you can talk to a lot of teachers where, you know, some of, a lot of times it's just scripted compulsory stuff. They have to sit there one afternoon, listen to some consultant that's getting paid big bucks to talk about stuff. And the teachers are just like, there's no buy-in. Um, you know, a lot of these consultants seem pretty disconnected from cl classroom practice and, you know, what the teacher is going through. And so, so I remember a lot of this <laughs> back in the day when I taught, you know, you sat through in the gym uh, and listen to these consultants talk about stuff. And it's like, man, this is not helping me in my day to day. Um, and so a lot of PD is like that. It's ineffective. Um, they're just not buying it. And so, so the literature on, on professional development isn't that great for education. Now, I don't want to say paint with too broad a brush here because there are examples of certain programs that have been shown to have some improvement, right? So the DC piece, right? There was, there was a PD piece. Now we're unsure how much of the PD piece, so I keep saying PD, professional development piece, translates into more effective teaching. But um, there's another study of, of a district in, I think it's in Cincinnati, Ohio, where um, teachers at various points in, in their profession had a year of evaluation and targeted PD. And it turns out based on that study, 
uh, at least in that for that district, that program uh, seemed to have make some benefits that teachers improved their ability to to uh, contribute to student learning. So, um, yeah, I don't want to overstate and just simply say like all PD is just worthless. There's definitely cases where we've seen big turnarounds, but you know, the sad thing is that these seem to be more the exception than the rule. And I think a lot of it comes down to, as what I alluded to earlier, uh, change is tough, right? You're, you're at, so schools are great because they're, they're established as institutions with inertia. So it's tough to change. So things that they do well, that's great. We've, we've got it. We've got an institution that, that has inertia from, you know, that prevents that stuff from, from moving. But the downside, right, the double-edged sword here is that, you know, when there are things, when there's potential to change things, when there's new ideas you want to try, um, it's just tough to implement well. And so I think that's why when we see PD done at scale, um, the results are less promising than, you know, if you did this like single case study of a district where, hey, we've got the leaders that can that can do this. We've got buy-in from the teachers. We've got quality, a quality program, right? Those things, uh, you know, it's those cases where you see improvement. But again, those that's not the norm. Yeah. So in the therapist world, what you're talking about is the problem of certification. So we have mm -hmm. a continuing ed process to have so many hours of, of continuing ed every year. And many clinicians, not all, they will at least start on some sort of certification process. So you can go yeah. get, you know, your master's degree, and then you can go get certified in like becoming a trauma therapist, right? Which yeah. is usually, it depends on the program, but it might be a, a four or five, six week program. You take the weeks, you know, one a month or something like that. And then at the end of it, you send in your tapes and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And what we found is in general, certification has no impact on outcomes. Mm -hmm. Right. And mm -hmm. I think you're talking about something that in some ways is kind of funny because you're saying that it's because of the buy-in with the teachers. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is true. And the same type of problem exists in therapy where mm -hmm. you don't have to go get certified. I mean, the, right. Like a lot of clinicians, the majority of their CEs are sort of up to them. You, you might have some provided to your job. Yeah. But and depending on your program, you might have all of them. But I would say like the, the majority of clinicians, the CEs that they get are up to them. So they have choice mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they're bought in. Yeah. And still it has no impact on outcomes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so, yeah. So yeah. It's like... Well, you, you know, it's, it's interesting you bring, you bring that up, the, the, the kind of voluntary aspect of this. So, so this actually does exist in teaching as well, that teachers can go and enroll in a program that they want to enroll in to get credits. Now, um, I, unfortunately, so there is a, uh, unfortunately, a perverse incentive here, right? So part of this is also the way teacher pay is typically done. Um, and so what happens is the more continuing ed credits, so to speak, to use your language that you get, um, you know, once you cross certain thresholds, you get a, a pay bump. Right. And so, for instance, like the master's degree, if you get a master's degree, I mean, you could get a pay bump of, you know, one, two, three, four, five grand. Um, and so certainly there's a, a great incentive to get 
a master's degree. And so a lot of teachers will, will pick programs that they like. Um, the, the problem is a lot of master's degree programs don't really do much to, to change quality, right? So, you know, the, the, the literature I, I mentioned um, about master's degrees, um, right, that's not at all associated with improved student learning. And so um, even in a case where there's, you know, buy-in, so to speak, because you're getting teachers to kind of pick programs that they like, um, you know, the, the, the kinds of programs that, that, that are available to them don't seem to be delivering um, the improvement. And, and certainly like that incentive to get the pay bump, um, I think that might di you know, dilute the impacts that we, we might expect to have as well. So why is this? Like in therapy, I think we're coming to a sense of why these continuing ed programs don't work. Mm. Um, and I'm happy to talk with you about that. But yeah, from yeah. where you stand, why is it that these programs don't work? What are they not doing? What's what's yeah. broken? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my so I I don't have great research backing to to uh, you know fully support this argument, but this is based on my observation and just I think what other people's people are are pointing out. Um, so I think part of this is that uh, schools of ed, um, and typically these 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 uh, opportunity programs for for continuing ed and education, they're targeting the wrong skills. And so, um, actually, a, a friend of mine did a study years ago of ed leadership programs. And what he did, he, he and his co-author did, was do a audit of all the syllabi of um, a lot of the, the EDD, right, ed leadership programs, doctorate in education programs um, that are available at, at uh, a lot of these universities across the country. And one of the big takeaways of that study was that um, based on the syllabi of the coursework, these candidates for, for getting additional leadership training weren't learning a lot of important skills that could be beneficial. So, you know, one of the things was about like, how do you uh, use data to make um, informed decisions? Um, how do you uh, just, you know, navigate uh, just the politics of dealing with the community and parents, right? There are like really essential skills there um, that just aren't being covered. Um, and I think the same, uh, I'm not aware of any study, formal study about this in terms of like teacher training, but that's also my sense of most of our uh, education programs, that it's a lot of um, pedagogical techniques, which uh, may not necessarily translate into more effective instruction. Um, you know, and then on the flip side of that, you know, I mentioned that some evidence that content knowledge helps. Um, schools of ed don't teach content knowledge that well. Um, they don't really, right? If you take a how to teach math class, or, or like a, if, if you're an aspiring math teacher, the coursework that's in like math education is mostly about how to teach math and less about learning math itself. And as a math major myself, you know, and I'm actually doing some work now trying to improve math curriculum and teacher prep in it. A lot of it's not 
about equipping the teacher to love math and to know math well, to become an expert in math. You know, for me, when I, being a math major, like maybe, maybe I thought too far, <laughs> too many notches above my students sometimes, but um, having access to the whole foundation and, and body of math, like, you know, I was able to like introduce my students to a lot of, you know, different things to enrich their, their, their math instruction. And, but, you know, you need content area expertise to do that. And unfortunately we don't do that in, in a lot of our teacher prep. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of Edward Bloom? And uh, I can't say that I have. There's a lot of blooms in education as well. <laughs> um, but but I, so, I don't think Edward Bloom. Uh -huh. um, nope. I think I mean Benjamin Bloom. Let me double check this really quickly. Yeah. Yeah, it's Benjamin Bloom. So Benjamin Bloom discovered that uh let me back up he's a he's a he's a really famous psychology uh educational psychologist i think mm -hmm. mostly for his bloom taxonomy but there's a little known fact about him that i think it's even more present than his bloom yeah taxonomy of yeah of a learning and it's called this two sigma problem mm. and so he was in the 80s early 80s late 70s trying to fix this problem of of education I don't know if you you probably know more about this than than I do actually, but um, we've been trying to fix education since the fifties at the late earliest with compensatory education. Sure, and actually we've been trying to fix education, you know, forever. We have even <laughs> every, even before every generation right? has been trying to fix this tackling. thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and it wasn't working, and what he found was that um he could actually take the average student and move them two sigmas above, mm -hmm. you know, the, the standard. Yep, Basically yep. take the average student and put them in the 98th percentile. If he gave them a uh, mastery based one-on-one tutoring. Mm, yeah. 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 Uh -huh. Mastery based yeah. education goes back in my understanding to like the twenties. Yeah. Um, but he really sort of said like, if we do not just teacher level, like not mm -hmm. like a one to 25 level or one to 12, but like a one-on-one. Yeah. -on -one. yeah. 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 You, the average student can be in the 98 percentile. Yeah. 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 But it's called a, his two sigma problem because you have a problem of scaling, yeah. right? Like how do you scale one-on-one -on -one education? If we know the average kid can do really well, mm -hmm. but it has to be one-on-one, -on -one. like yeah. what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. And so, my question for you is being someone who's researching the field well i'll say this and we've basically discovered the same thing in counseling hmm. Hmm. that if you give in in our side of the field it's called deliberate practice i actually just finished a book on this this is where i should plug my book deliberate practice for multicultural therapy cool yeah yeah um but if and it's out now on Amazon. You can get it. Nice. <laughs> whatever, yeah. whatever is what to say, right? Yeah, yeah. You can get it on Amazon today. Yep. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you if you if you can get one on one coaching, um, then actually your outcomes can improve a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my mm -hmm. question is: Do you know this is back in the eighties of any modern interventions that 
are sort yeah. of doing this? Yeah. yeah. Or is this something that because it's not scalable, it's just so hard to do that it's not really happening. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. 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 No. So, so definitely um, high dosage tutoring is, is been an idea. It's still popular today. Um, people still talk about it. Um, and, and yeah, so I think Bloom is right. Um, uh, and yeah, I guess I didn't make the connection. It was Bloom's taxonomy, the same Bloom as Bloom's taxonomy. But um, uh, so this is, uh, uh, so there have been several schools and places that have tried uh, these high dosage tutoring interventions. Um, so I can think of uh, some charter schools, um, uh, typically like in a lot of these urban areas, uh, New York City, Harlem Children's Zone, um, Boston, um, uh, I think like in Houston, and like, you know, so, uh, I mean, people don't use, people hate using this term, uh, or at least, you know, they call them no excuses schools. Um, part of it's like, you know, there's no excuse for not achieving. Poverty is not an excuse, right? You're going to achieve. You can achieve. And in these schools, um, tutoring, high dosage tutoring is a big uh, hallmark of their model. And if you look at the research of these no excuses charter schools, I mean, they knock it out of the park. Um, we haven't seen effect sizes in terms of improving student outcomes like that high. Um uh, I actually, I just heard a talk given by someone I was researching this who um, was part of the early work, and um, she was studying the, the schools in Boston, and when she came back to her advisors, she was a PhD student then. They didn't um, believe her. They were like, they didn't believe her. This can't you be know, real. 30% of a standard <laughs> deviation increase. They're like, wait, what is, what, wait a second, you're, you're closing right. 30%, right? Like, no way. We've never seen interventions do that, right? What's you're going clearly on, fudging right? the data. Like, yeah, literally. you must be. And this is, right. And this is high quality, like research design, random assignment, you know, I mean, just to nerd out there, but, um, and so we, we, we actually see that, um, that there's evidence now. And of course, like there could be other things as part of the package in these charter schools that are doing it, but, but tutoring is a big hallmark. And I think there's, there's studies, uh, just tutoring interventions themselves that have demonstrated big impacts. So, so, um, I, I think that's true. Um, and I think high dosage tutoring, um, can really help. And actually there, there's people talking about it even more now because, um, I mean, I don't know if you're aware, just, uh, with national, so there's a, a test that's given by the U.S. Department of Education regularly called the National Assessment and Education Progress. So it's like this, they call it the nation's report card because it's a test that's administered to a nationally representative sample of fourth, eighth, and 12th graders. And everyone's talking about the most recent wave of this because it was administered right after the pandemic and huge learning drops that we haven't seen for decades um, huge, yeah. because of all the, you know, in-person disruption, right? So um, people are talking about, hey, can we use tutoring? Because, you know, we've seen tutoring deliver um, learning gains that are that are bigger than, than anything we've ever seen. So um, it's definitely right. Now, as you say, uh, the problem is how do, you, how do you scale this up, right? It's a resource intent, intensive, like in, in the extreme, we're going to do one-on-one -on -one for every kid. Um, and that's, that's resource intensive, um, you know, and you could think of also like the analog would simply be to, to lower class sizes, which, um, I think is, is promising. Um, now I think, so the research on class size is, um, this is actually good. The, yeah. So yeah, say so this is actually one of the, uh, 
other areas where our fields dovetail. So uh-huh. let's talk about this a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like caseload for you guys or something versus class size. Um, or- one of the early, um, I'm going to botch it now and I can't think of it, but one of the early papers on, it was something like effect size. I forget, mm-hmm. I forget what the statistical measure was. Came yeah. from people who were studying um uh class size. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I can't remember. I mean it doesn't really yeah. matter, but anyway, yeah, yeah. yeah. So like the, the most famous class size experiment is the Tennessee Star experiment. This is this is actually, I think it's like in the 90s. Um, and actually people kind of debate the findings um of of uh right. Some people worry about there, there might be some fishy things in the research design. So maybe the effect sizes are overstated, but certainly like this is one where, where people who want to uh, argue for class size cite the Tennessee star experiment that shows some, some gains with smaller class sizes. Now there's a caveat to this story because um, so actually this is, this has a personal connection to me because um, I grew up in California and after the California class size or the, the Tennessee class size study was released and people talked about it and got traction. The state of California was using that, used that evidence to argue for class size reduction um, in grades K through three. And so I remember actually when I, I I think I was like in fifth or sixth grade, something like that. Um, And I remember like my, my younger sisters, it was a big deal that when they started entering kindergarten or they were in first, second, third grade, they had smaller classes. I think like they were capped at 20, you know? I was like, oh, I, I as a kid thought like, that's weird. Like, okay, they're making class sizes smaller and I missed the boat. Um, but it now that I'm kind of in this field and researching this stuff, I realized that that was basically the, the, the implementation of class size reduction across California. Now, what happened in California? Like you would think that you might've seen the same improvements in test scores that you saw in the Tennessee pilot experiment. Um, and it turns out you didn't. And what the reason for that is that as you, so think about what, what do you have to do when you implement this? If you want to implement class size reductions at scale, you need to hire a ton of new teachers. Mm. That means, but the problem is once you need to hire like that huge wave of new teachers, you're not necessarily getting quality. Right. And so what happened in California is like this big kind of aha learning moment in terms of implementing, like we got good research maybe to support something. Um, but the the practical implementation of it has lots of other variables. Right. And so in California, you didn't really see the, the same effects because um, you couldn't scale it up. Right. And so even and so. You know, personally, for me, like a lot of folks are are looking to figure out, can we scale interventions where we've seen evidence of, of effectiveness. And that's really the kind of the holy grail now. And um, uh, I'm, I'm skeptical, skeptical of how well a lot of these things can scale. Um, I mean, it seems to me like, you know, like, as you say, if tutoring, one-on-one tutoring works because of the intense attention, right. That, that the student gets, you know, I also think there's a lot of um, uh, kind of things that that aren't explicit that are going on there. So I, I think like that student is building this relationship with that tutor and and that tutor, you know, that 
because of the connection that the student has with this other, with other human, another human, right? This human's able to speak into this kid's life, right? And say like, hey, you should try hard, right? That maybe, you know, in a big class, right? This student gets, becomes a face and loses the connection and rapport with their teacher. And it's like, well, why should you care about trying hard and doing well in school if no adult, right, is giving you that message to, to do that. And, but I think when you do one-on-one -on -one tutoring, not only are you targeting particular skills that the student needs to improve upon, you're developing this kind of intangible, hey, I, I see you, right? And, and you should care about this. And I care about how you turn out, right? So, so me, I mean, me, right? I don't, like, I don't, I mean, I think that you're right. You know, Bloom sort of talks about this in, in mm. his, in his article where he reviews this. He basically says, you know, out of a class of 20 students, you have five who will not relate to the teacher's style of teaching. Mm -hmm. And you have 10 who will be in the middle and kind of get it. Yeah. You have five who they really relate to the teacher and the mm. teacher continually teaches to those students. Mm. And those are the ones who go on to have to be the best quote unquote students in the class. Hmm. So there is a sort of also implicit thing of the ones who the teacher relates the best to yeah, get the yeah. most attention subtly and they get all the breaks and the encouragement and the, and so hmm. then they go on to be better students. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. I don't think that you're wrong. Yeah. And I, I think, let me talk about scaling because that's a whole other thing. Um, on this issue of scaling, what about these no excuse charter schools? Like, yeah. do they not yeah. scale up? Is it? They do. Hard to... They do. Um, so, you know, I mean, these, these networks have grown. So, so, but it's gradual, right? Like it's gradual. Like these, I mean, the first charter schools started in Minnesota in the early 1990s. So we've, they've really? only been around wow. for 30 years. That's yeah. Really... We feel like they've been around forever. This is only a 30 year old reform idea in the United States. And, um, and so some charter network. So I think the thing here to see is that like, you can scale this up. The challenge is like, this is 30 years in the making, right? And and actually, um uh you know it's it's, it's not long easy for a person. It's a long short yeah for uh a societal change, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. But but 30 years, think think how many generations of K-12 students have gone through the system lot, in 30 yeah, years, right? Yeah. And and so so you know, I, I guess maybe I'll, I'll revise my. I'm skeptical of scaling. I'm I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical of, of scaling. I mean, quickly it, it, scaling, yeah. right? I, I think I think I can see it gradually happen. Now, look, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe this is going to put me back in the skeptical of scaling camp because I don't see a no excuses school popping up in every single city across the United States, right? Like, um, you know, they're located throughout the country, but. Uh, I forget what percentage of charter school students are actually at those schools. It's, it's not that huge, right? So there's a diversity of charter schools. Um, you know, in Massachusetts, I mean, the issues political, I mean, all education issues are political. Uh, you know, when I was living in Cambridge uh, back in 2016, there was a ballot measure across the state to increase the cap of charter schools. So so there's a charter cap. There's a cap? There's a, yeah, so, so it's You're political, limiting? right? There's there's <laughs> interests, right? Like, like, um, like, Public school teachers unions, right? They, there's an interest in not having too many of these, right? And so, so it is political, right? So, um, you know, in, in Massachusetts, there's a cap of how many of these charter schools you could have. And uh, when we voted on it, despite all this evidence, 
uh, I mean, the unions ran a great campaign and the thing, the, the ballot measure to lift the cap to allow more charter schools was voted down like by two to one. Wow. You know, despite all this evidence, right? And you're helping like kids in these impoverished urban areas that have no access to a, yeah. a great school. And unfortunately, like, you know, we should talk about anyway. unions. Not today. <laughs> we should talk about unions yeah. because I'm so conflicted. Yeah. I think I love the heart behind unions of advocating for the people who work there. Yeah. And then I see repeatedly that they 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 stall change. They yeah. stall change. Yeah. And so I, I'm very conflicted. I would love to hear your thoughts and your research. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Maybe another almost, time. <laughs> we're almost out yeah. of time. I'd love to have you yeah. back on. I have one more question for you. Sure. Yeah. Um I don't know if you're aware of this, and I think that this could be very promising. So Khan Academy just released their Conmigo version yeah, of their app. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, And they're trying to scale one-on-one tutoring through yep. using AI. Yep. And we've seen this in the past, as in I recently read a study of DARPA. They were trying to increase the number of experts they had in their security hmm. division. And they basically, this is like in the early 2000s, so they had a... a it wasn't AI, but it's basically like a, a computerized training program. Uh-huh. And their outcomes were amazing. Basically, the people who went through their program compared to the people who went through traditional training and the current experts, people mm-hmm. who went through their program were miles ahead of everyone else. Yeah. And so there's some evidence, and I think that this is pointing in the right direction, that AI tutors can really scale this one-on-one tutoring mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. what do you think i mean we're not quite there yeah. yet but do you think i know man this is there, like do you think it's predicting the, the future yeah. yeah um yeah no i i've been in in a couple just conversations about about this um yeah i don't know so uh i think when it comes to like really rote skills um i think some ai tutor you know some bot might be able to help you with a procedure. Um, uh, you know, when it comes to more complicated things, I'm I'm not, I'm a little skeptical about. Um, you know, so so here I think here here's my I think in a nutshell here's my hangup. So, um, AI isn't great at helping kids acquire discernment and judgment, Um, right? These are like things when kids have to judge like what's good, bad, you know, beautiful, ugly, or, you know, these, these kinds of value judgments, Um, what's wise, right? What, what, what is, what's wisdom for me in this situation? Like, I don't know that AI um, has prudence, right? Um, And so insofar as education requires some of that, like, and I think a lot of problem solving might require some prudence. so I'm I'm more skeptical of AI being able to do that. Um, but when it comes to uh, like you know teaching like procedures, um, uh, I don't know. We mentioned Bloom's taxonomy, like the, the a lot of the, the very base level type stuff. I I think there's potential, right? So there are things I think that you know bots can probably would probably be able to do. I think there are, there's a category of things that it has to be a bot with a teacher, right? And I think there are things that it has to be left with a, a human teacher. Um, so I don't know. I, I think there'll be some things that might be revolutionized, but um, I'm skeptical that it'll 
be a huge revolution. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I might be proven wrong. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, you're really drawing a fine distinction, right? And in some ways, it might not be relevant, right? Like, and yeah, I mean that in the sense of, you know, if every kid came out of school with, you know, 12th actual 12th grade math skills and actual yeah. 12th grade programming skills, which are things that are more procedural, I think mm -hmm. we would still have a better world, right? Yeah. If, if it, and so maybe they don't come out with more discernment mm -hmm. in terms of like, what questions should I be asking? But from the way I see the education system right now, mm -hmm. everyone came out just with basic skills. Yeah. That yeah. would be a huge improvement. Yeah. 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 If every yeah. kid could code and do math and read. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, yeah. I think, I think that alone would be like so far beyond where we are right now. <laughs> like yeah. 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 Like, no, I mean, that's, that's, that's a fair argument. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if reform and improvements always about gradual change and increments. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe that's a victory, right? The world's a little yeah. bit better. And we should cheer that on. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Albert Chang, I appreciate your time today. It's been a fast hour. Please come back on later. Yeah, okay. yeah. No, it's been fast for me too, man. I've, I've loved uh, engaging with you on this and yeah. hearing about your your field. Yes. Is there, do you have any closing words or any place you want to send people? Um, I, you know, you're you're less of an influencer, more of an academic, but maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe you do have a blog or something you want to push. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, so I don't have a blog, uh, but I'll just say that, you know, if, if you if uh, folks want a, a great um, uh, uh, website that uh, where they can read the research um, in, in a really accessible way, um, uh, you know, I mean, this is written, I mean, policymakers and researchers read this, but the interested layperson can can read it as well. So um, it's it's education next. Dot org. I think I'll I'll plug Education Next. Um, you know, I, I used to work at that shop, um, but I think uh, for those interested, just learning, like, hey, what are people talking about? What, what's some of the latest research? Um, I mean, you know, discussions about AI and all that, like the pressing issues. Uh, that's a great starting point um, to to learn a lot more. Again, thank you so much, and I'll catch you later. All right, great. Great to be here.